Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I am Evelyn Marcus. And I am Phyllis Zimbler-Miller. Today we speak with a young British man whose great-grandmother, a hundred-year-old Holocaust, Holocaust survivor, is now an international sensation, especially on TikTok. Dov Foreman is the author with his Hungarian-born great-grandmother Lily Ebert of the book Lily's Promise, Holding on to Hope Through Auschwitz and Beyond. Lily's portrait was one of seven commissioned by then-Prince Charles for the Royal Collection. Dov, thank you for coming on our show and welcome. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be with you today. So could you hold up the book while I ask you the question? which I have read and appreciate Lily's promise, but how did it come about? So it's a question which I get asked a lot. I'm 20 years old and I'm the great grandson of a Holocaust survivor. So the question is often, how come you got writing a book when you were 16, your great grandmother was 96, how did this happen? And it all started during the COVID pandemic. So many people were sat at home with nothing to do. And it gave me an opportunity for the first time in my life to properly ask my great grandmother questions about what she went through. And I did that not so that I could gain millions of followers or write a book, but it was simply that I could understand my great grandmother's testimony. I've always had an interest in history and an interest in learning more about what she went through. I think we can learn the most from our own family members and those who are close to us. And that's something which for so long I've tried to tell other young people about. It doesn't matter if your grandparents are Holocaust survivors or not. People who have a lived experience, who have lived longer than us, they have a story to tell whether that's your parents, your siblings, your grandparents, great-grandparents, if you're lucky enough to have them, everyone has a story and we should learn those. And so many people don't know their own family history. And that's something which is incredibly important to me. And it all started with one tweet in July, 2020. I asked my great-grandmother to show me some things which I could kind of learn more about her story from. And she showed me a banknote and we'll get more into that story later, I'm sure. Um, so I won't bore the story too much, but eventually things started to snowball and we gained followers on social media and I continued to interview my great grandmother even more. And eventually that led to our book, Lily's Promise, which chronicles my great grandmother's whole experience from birth and her loving childhood through to the start of the war in 1939. And then the slave labor camps, the death camp, Altritz-Birkenau, where she spent four months slave labor factory in Germany, the death march and then liberation, and then restarting a new life. And she's not only survived, she's thrived. My great grandmother has 10 grandchildren and 37 great grandchildren with more on the way. And that's what the book is about. And it also has my voice in speaking about modern day anti-Semitism and the need to continue these stories. Well, that's a, a, an amazing cooperation between your great grandmother and you um, and a very inspiring to hear about. Thank you. Um, Dove, can you pre briefly share Lily's survivor story with us, uh, including the promise she made to herself about surviving to tell the story? My great grandmother was born in 1923 in Hungary in a small suburban town called Bonyhards. And you would have noticed 1923, that makes her 100. And she only recently, a few months ago in December, celebrated her 100th birthday, which was so special. But back to her story, she describes her childhood as the most loving, outdoor, friendly childhood where she had the best parents that anyone could ask for. As I said, she was the eldest of six siblings and she spent a lot of time outside playing with her neighbours, her non-Jewish neighbours. 
those non-Jewish neighbours were the same people who, in March 1944, when the Nazis invaded Hungary, turned on them and knocked on their door and asked them to pack up their belongings and move to the ghetto in the smallest part of the town. They were then told to sew yellow stars on their uniform, and only a few months later, in July 1944, were taken, along with the rest of the Hungarian Jews, apart from those in Budapest, to Auschwitz-Birkenau. My great-grandmother didn't know where she was arriving to. She was placed into a wagon with 70 to 80 other individuals with two buckets, one bucket for water and one bucket for human waste. They could only have the food that they carried. It was a very hot July, a very hot summer that year. And my great-grandmother remembers people dying on the train. Old people, young people, babies, mothers, children, fathers, all crammed into one small space with very little place to sit down and the place you took, you weren't able to move from there. They arrived in Auschwitz after five days on the 9th of July, 1944. And my great-grandmother was one of the last trains to arrive in Auschwitz-Birkenau from Hungary because during the time that she was being deported, Miklos Horthy, the Hungarian prime minister or president, stopped the deportations. And it just shows, imagine if my great-grandmother was put on those trains just one day later, she wouldn't have had to endure the pain and the suffering she did in Auschwitz-Birkenau. My great-grandmother arrived together with her mother, three sisters and youngest brother, and unfortunately, upon arriving, Dr. Mengele took her mother, youngest sister and youngest brother straight to death in the gas chambers. And they, along with 100 other members of my great-grandmother's extended family and 14,000 other people that day were murdered within hours of arriving. My great-grandmother was taken to the right where her hair was shaved and where she was given new clothing. And she spent four months in Auschwitz. And she tells one story, which I'll recount now in the time that we have which is that she looked after she arrived at the chimney and she said to someone who had already been there for a few months before, what factory is here? What do they produce? And they said, there's no factory here. That's where they've just burned your mother, your, bro your brother and your younger sister. And she says that was the moment where she realised where she had arrived. When she saw people walking around when she just arrived who looked like skeletons and aliens, she thought she had arrived at somewhere which was out of this world. But actually, she had arrived in Auschwitz-Birkenau. She spent four months there with two of her sisters, and then they were luckily selected to slave labour in, in Altenburg, which is in Germany, where they were making bullets for the Nazis. And they then, a few months later, in April 1945, were liberated on the death march by Allied forces, and she was liberated by a Jewish-American liberator who showed her the first piece of kindness which she received after the war. He wanted to show her that kind of how much it meant for him to see survivors. And he gave her banknotes because he couldn't find a piece of paper. And he wrote on the edges, the start to a new life, good luck and happiness. Ten words of hope. And that's the first piece of kindness she received. And she kept that for 76 years. And three years ago during COVID, I found that banknote. And that's, again, back to the beginning where this all started. And I shared that banknote with the world on Twitter. And within two million, within eight hours, two million people had seen that banknote. And we managed to find the soldier's family. So that's just the overview of my good grandmother's story. And what about the promise? Sorry, um, a lot to recount. My great-grandmother promised herself when she was in Auschwitz that if she survived, she would tell the world what happened to her there. And she's done, done just that. Together, we have over 2.1 million followers. We have written a book, which is a New York Times and a Sunday Times bestseller and includes a forward from His Majesty the King. And hundreds of thousands of people have heard her and read her book and have heard her in schools, universities, colleges, workplaces, religious areas too, um, synagogues, churches, mosques, and she's had an incredible impact on the world and her stories and her messages have been cherished and loved by so many. 
And unfortunately, with time, the Holocaust survivors are dwindling. My great grandmother is 100 years old. She's not able with the same tenacity and energy to go out to these places and educate. And it's up to us, the younger people, younger generations, other Jewish people, but not only Jewish people, to go out and to share these stories and to bear witness for them and to do the work that they've been doing so courageously for so long. Why do you think, though, that I read lots of Holocaust books and why do you think this one took off in a way that others haven't? I'm not. I'm not judging literary. Um, is it your own genius? And I use that word on purpose uh, of using social media or just the appeal of your great grandmother herself? I mean, what made this book special? I think it's a multifaceted answer which I'm going to give. Which is one, it was during COVID. People looking for good stories. And the Holocaust is a unique human tragedy, the darkest period in human history. But the story of my great grandmother and myself coming together to write this book and going viral on social media and the positive messages which my great grandmother shares and everyone who sees her loves her. I think all those came together for people to say, wow, this is an incredible story. I want to read this. And people had more time on their hands. And so they bought the book in mass, um, on mass. And, and thankfully, people were sharing it with others. And we also had a great big social media following, as you say, and we were able to use that to, for our advantage and to spread Holocaust education on possibly a level not seen before online. And that helped us not only promote the book, but also ensure that younger children who haven't come across the Holocaust, particularly Americans who aren't taught it in school, were able to learn from my great grandmother. And you can't learn about the Holocaust in one minute clips on social media. That's impossible. But what you can do is gain an initial interest and say, wow, I didn't know about this. There's a survivor called Lily on TikTok and her great grandson Dov. And I can watch 700 of their videos and then maybe I can learn something. And so I think that's always been our aim. It's not to educate people in 30 seconds, but it's just to engage younger children. And that's also what we do through our book. And our book is child friendly, so to speak. It's graphic, but not too graphic. And it's written in a way that young children can read it too. And I think that's also another reason why it took off, because people were able to read it at all different ages. Parents read it and then transferred it to their children. And then it kind of spreads like wildfire, really. And Prince Charles has been a huge fan. I mean, he has. Charles now. When he is the king. At the time he was Prince Charles. This is a photo of um, us recently. When he was king, actually, my great grandmother received an award, the most excellent order of the British Empire, um, for all of the work that she's done educating about the Holocaust. And that was us at Windsor Castle collecting that gift, which um, His Majesty King Charles gave us. And the fact that we had a forward at the time from the Prince of Wales, from him, did help us market the book, but it was more than that. It showed that people like the royal family will stand by the Jewish community and will say what happened in the Holocaust should never be forgotten and never repeated. And how do we know that it will be never repeated? We know it will be never repeated because we can be sure that people like the King will personally vouch for the Jewish people and say, this isn't okay where he sees anti-Semitism. And we've seen that since October the 7th when anti-Semitism has been on the rise. He has supported our community and that's so important. And we're, we're, we are, I don't even know the word to say, I guess humbled and honored to have his support, not only with the book, but the fact that as you mentioned in the introduction, he commissioned a portrait which hangs in Buckingham Palace of my great grandmother and seven other survivors. And he really feels a deep commitment to Holocaust education. And I think it's important to say that his grandmother, Princess Alice of Greece, saved Jews during the Holocaust. She is buried as a righteous among the nations on, on uh, Mount Olives in um, in Jerusalem, next in the old city or next to the old city. And she saved Jews during the Holocaust. 
And there is so much about the royal family's possibly involvement during the Holocaust in a negative way. But that's a story which is so over often overlooked. And I think it's important to note. Yes. Your videos on TikTok are very successful. Um, what made you decide to use that platform to share Lily's story? And are there other things in addition that you share in those videos? Social media can be a very dangerous place, but it can also be, if used correctly and in the right way, an incredible tool. At the click of a button, you, with the button that says post, you can reach tens of millions of people instantaneously within seconds. And that's something which I realized by mistake. I often call myself an accidental game changer. During COVID, I pressed the button which said tweet in July in 2020. And by mistake, I went viral. Two million people saw our tweets within eight hours. We found that American liberator who wrote that note to my great grandmother in April 1945. And that was the start of my journey. And I realized, wow, I can have an influence and I can make an impact. And that snowballed and eventually we moved to TikTok where within three months we had a million followers. And it made me realize that my great grandmother has a story to share. I also have a story to share. And it's time that we realized that young people, young Jewish people, Holocaust educators are needed on these platforms because there's so much denial, so much distortion and so much anti-Semitism. And it's not enough to say, wow, we need to hold these social media companies to account. We do need to do that as well. And I, I do that the whole time. I meet with TikTok and I say some more needs to be done to protect Jewish creators, to protect young Jewish people and to protect young people in general from the extremism and the conspiracy theories which are prominent online. But what's for sure is that we need more people, more Jewish people going out there and actually educating to ensure that we reach those young children before the deniers, the distorters and the anti-Semites do. And so my great grandmother and I not only educate about the Holocaust and ask each other questions and tell people what Judaism is really about, but we also show that my great grandmother was able to rebuild her life in a positive way. We show her cooking or gardening and we show me going on different trips into different museums and we show the other side too. We don't only educate in a sad way. We show fun parts of life and regular parts of life too. And I think that's why people have fallen in love with my great grandmother because you can't help but fall in love when you see how amazing of a person she is despite what she went through. And she could have so easily, her and all the other survivors, been consumed by hate and said, well, I hate the Germans or the Nazis and I don't want to live a happy life. But quite the opposite. She lived a very happy life and she taught a whole family only to love. Has there been any backlash on TikTok since October 7th? Unfortunately, too much. Every day I wake up to thousands of anti-Semitic comments, things which I won't even repeat on here. But to but, you directly or just in general? Because in general, there's... No, to me directly on our posts, in direct messages, not only on TikTok, but Instagram and Twitter too. And unfortunately, I mean, I thankfully I've had a platform where I've got over 2 million followers and I've been able to go on news um, and radio. But unfortunately, it puts you in a position where people hate you because you're Jewish and you have a platform. And so how do you deal with that? Look, it's a question which I get so often. And the first thing is that I prefer to focus on the positive messages which we get. As many negative comments that we get, we get so many positive ones too. People thanking us for the work we do. People saying how much they have gained and learned from it. And that means so much to me because that was our aim, to educate and to reach people who otherwise wouldn't know. And so when I get those messages, that reinforces to me why I need to do what I do, because it is making a difference. But what also perhaps even more reinforces why I need to do what I do is when I get those negative comments. And I say, well, look, unfortunately people hate and I can't change that. Anti-Semitism is the oldest form of hatred in the world. And it doesn't seem like I'm going to be the person to solve that. But what's for sure is that the reason it's there and the reason it's still there and will continue to be there 
not only now, but in the future, unfortunately, is the reason I'll continue to do the work that I do. How, out of all the acclaim Lily has received since the publication of the book, which experience meant the most to her? It's a very difficult question, this. I think every single experience which we've had together, but also that she's had in the past few years, and perhaps even since the Holocaust, is unique, and she appreciates every small thing in life. She, I think, feels most fulfilled, perhaps, by the fact that she wrote this book and her story is written down for posterity. But she also can't believe that two million people want to listen to her every single day on TikTok. And, of course, she's humbled and honoured by the support we've had from the royal family and from prime ministers and world leaders. But what means the most to her is just the ordinary and regular people like you and I who reach out to her and say thank you for the work that she does. Every single letter, every single comment, it means so much to her. I see in her eyes and in her smile every single time. That's great. Um, yeah. How does she feel about the anti-Semitism in the UK right now? It's extremely difficult, not only for her, but for all the survivors. They thought that with the end of the Holocaust would come the end of hatred and anti-Semitism. They thought that the vow of never again would be upheld. But unfortunately, many years ago, that was broken. We've seen genocide again. We've seen hatred. So the vow of never again for at least survivors like my great-grandmother and even myself turns to never again would people stand idly by. People would learn not to stay silent. But again, on our streets, in reaction to the worst mass atrocity since the Holocaust against Jewish people, we are seeing people going out calling for further violence, people going out being anti-Semitic, celebrating what happened on October 7th. And that's so difficult. But what's even more difficult is my great-grandmother seeing those people who are supposedly anti-racist champions, those people who supposedly stand up for women's values, who are feminist groups, staying silent, and not only staying silent, but siding with those who committed the terror. Do you know how difficult that is for people like my great-grandmother to witness and to see? To hear her own great-grandson say on TV how he is scared to go out to university with a kippah on. Do you understand that for my great-grandmother, that makes her feel, and not only feel, she now knows, and so do I, and so do we all, that the anti-Semitism that led to not only humans, but Jewish people being crammed into the gas chambers because they were Jewish, did not die with the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau on the 27th of July or 20, uh, on the 27th of January 1945. In fact, it's still very much alive and vibrant on our streets today. An anti-Semitism which only a few months ago simmered below the surface has boiled well over. And though the Jews are in that boiling pot and we're starting to feel the heat and we're starting to feel that fear and that danger. And more has to be done by the government, by the police and by regular individuals who believe in freedom, who believe in Western values, who believe in freedom of expression and belief. They need to say, we don't want our Jewish brothers and sisters to have to go again, not in the same way what happened in the Holocaust, but to again have to fear living their ordinary lives. And, you know, the great litmus test of post-Holocaust emancipation was supposed to be where the Jewish people can learn freely on university campuses. And at the moment, we're failing that test. So you, you feel that every individual speaking out is important? A hundred percent. People often say to me, in interviews, well, you speak about individuals speaking out. What could someone who lived two kilometers from Alfredsburg and out during the Holocaust have done? Them speaking out wouldn't have made a difference. And you're right. Unfortunately, one individual's voice at times doesn't mean so much, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't speak out. And that doesn't mean that you should be on the right side of history. Because a day will come in the future when firstly, if everyone came together and rallied together and said, this isn't acceptable because it is a silent majority. The majority of people don't hate Jews. 
but the majority of people just stay silent when people are hating Jews. So if everyone in that majority came together and said it wasn't acceptable, then actually you would be able to make a change and you would be able to lobby for difference and you would be able to have that collateral together. But if you all stay silent, then you won't be able to have that. And that one person who stands up will be silenced. But, and and, and I do think people will be judged. Sorry, Philip, I'll come to you in a second. I think that people will be judged in the future. Your grandchildren or your children will say to you, what did you do when anti-Semitism was rising? What did you do when hatred was rising? Did you stay silent? And unfortunately, some people that we know, our old friends, who used to be friends with us before October 7th, who have now stayed silent in the face of the worst anti-Semitism since the Holocaust, will have to say, I didn't do anything. I didn't care enough. What I wanted to say is that uh, a very dear friend of mine is organizing neighborhood uh, groups now to speak up here in uh, Los Angeles. If you could wave a magic wand, what would be the thing that you could say that um, Jews and non-Jews in Britain could do immediately on an individual coming together into groups uh, level? Because it's a difficult question, and if we had the answer, I'm sure everyone would be doing all they could. I think the most important thing, especially for non-Jews, is just to reach out to your Jewish friends and say, look, this isn't acceptable, and I side with you. I don't side with the rapist sympathisers and terrorist sympathisers who go out on our streets and pose anti-Western sentiment, thank you Houthis and Zionists off our campus, and to say, you know what, that isn't acceptable, that isn't okay, and to write to whether it's your member of parliament or your representative or to your university, if you're an alumni, and say, why aren't you doing more? Because as I said before, with collective, with a collective voice, if you have a letter which is signed by hundreds of alumni, you can make a difference and they will listen, and it's much more impactful than one person. So I think, look, I don't have the answer, and I won't pretend that I do, but just do all you can, reach out to different people, reach out to Jewish friends, reach out to universities, reach out to representatives, and just ensure that your voice continues to be heard because you have a seat at the table. And that's something which I've learned as a young person doing this work, that if you show that you're passionate about something, you will have a seat at the table. And uh, Phyllis and I, um, throughout this program, uh, throughout the, 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 the different episodes of this podcast have always advocated for speaking up by individuals, every individual. It's so much better than staying silent. You cannot save the world on your own, but you can, maybe people hear you, join you, um, and add to your the voice, add to the, the, the uh, strength of your own voice. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Evelyn? What can Lily's resilience teach us today about facing anti-Semitism? I think so much, especially since October 7th. The hope for a brighter future, to look for the smallest piece of light, even in the darkest of tunnels, and to say that light will come, better days will come, have hope. My great-grandmother managed to hold on to that hope during the darkest of times, perhaps the darkest place that ever existed in the world, Auschwitz-Birkenau. She held that hope and that's what helped to survive. And it's up to us at the moment where it might seem so dark and at times it seems so bleak that things won't get better, but it will get better and better days will come. And we know that because it always does. That's the nature of the world. And eventually this war will finish. It has to because all wars always do. And anti-Semitism will again go down. It will simmer again. And it will be very difficult for us to look around and see those same people who were protesting against us again in the same lectures as us and things like that. And 
it will be difficult and we'll know that perhaps they hate us, but you have to carry on and things will get better and people will stand by us. We've had incredible support. I know um, that perhaps it might seem wavering at the moment, but the governments have been pretty supportive of, of Israel's right to self-defense, but also of the Jewish communities. They've invested in security and they've said the right things. And we need to look at the positive side. And I know this interview has been quite negative in terms of anti-Semitism, but just look at the Jewish communities and how many positive things are going on too. There's a lot to be proud to be proud of and to be hopeful of for the future. Before we close, are you in university right now in uh, the UK? I am. So uh, it's not really fair to ask you to compare to American universities, but what, if you don't want to name your university, it's fine, but what is the university administration's position towards protecting Jewish students in the UK? Anti-Semitism on campuses is an epidemic here in the United Kingdom, similar to the US. It's been yes. very difficult students. I have so many students who didn't feel comfortable going in, who didn't want to go to university, who are scared to go in even now, four months after October 7th. And it's been difficult and there's so much more work to do. Some universities have been proactive and have issued good statements. Others have not. And I think the problem with universities is every institution has its own unique operation. And so some will take anti-Semitism reports seriously and others will not. I don't think that our, our campuses have been as bad, but we've seen death threats, we've seen students targeted, we've seen um, protests inside unis through the libraries, we've seen intimidation, and those are all scary things. We've seen um, spray paint on the Jewish Hillel houses here in the United Kingdom, and it's a scary time to be a Jewish person on campus, particularly if you live on the campus. I'm lucky I live at home, I go to a London university, but if you don't, and you you have nowhere to escape really because your whole uni life is in the campus. I can't imagine how difficult that is. As we end this interview, is there anything that you wish we'd covered? Here's your chance to say it. Go ahead. Look, I would just say it's it's bleak times. Of course, anti-Semitism is on the rise and what we've seen since October 7th is frightening. But I would say that my great grandmother always encourages you to hold on to that hope. It goes back to what we were saying earlier. Better days will come, brighter days will come. And we are stronger together. We must remember that. We need to unify. We need to use our voices. Make sure that you use your voice because indifference and silence led to 6 million people being murdered in the Holocaust. Don't allow that silence to be repeated again. Use all the power, all the platform, all your voice to ensure that you can turn around to your children and say, I tried and it worked. Thank you for such heartfelt words. We thank our audience for listening. For those of you who want to know more about Evelyn myself, you can go to Never Again Is Now podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple podcasts. And please speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.